Jeremy Kowalski. The sun is down, the streetlights are on, and you're listening to Largely the Truth with Brennan Store. To all you restless sleepers and midnight creepers, bleary-eyed truckers and the graveyard shift, this is Brennan Store, and you're listening to Largely the Truth. Whether you're staring at a screen or the lines on the road, all is well. For the next little while, it's going to stay that way. Because I'm here, you're there, and together, we're going to explore the night. Welcome back to Largely the Truth. I am your host, Brennan Store. And this is the show where we find the most interesting people we can sit down and hear about their world. And folks, I've got a great show lined up for you tonight. One of the things I was hoping for when I started this show, uh, of course, because the show is still very new, was to meet people whose work I find interesting or, or who has a unique perspective to offer anything like that. And it was always my hope that those conversations would take us to unexpected places. And so far on the show, I think we've managed to do a pretty solid job of doing that in our seven episodes. And this conversation is a really brilliant example of that. We go from dog sledding adventures to the province of Alberta as jewel of the New West to tragedy. And of course, Synthwave, because my guest is a Canadian Synthwave artist, Chad Williamson, also known as Moonrunner83. And for those of you who don't know, Synthwave, I'm sure you, you would have known it by this point. Synthwave is uh, an electronic music genre, which is typically uh, reminiscent of the 80s. It's got a very 80s-esque sound. And I first became aware of Synthwave in 2017, uh, roughly around the time Moonrunner got his start. And the genre has evolved over the course of the years, because as we all know, one of the few things we can count on in this great big world is change. And as Synthwave has evolved, so too has Moonrunner 83. And one of the many things Chad talks about in this interview is how he has seen Moonrunner's sound evolve and where he thinks it's going to go. So, relax, settle in, and I'll put a call out to Mr. Moonrunner 83. With his 2017 debut album, Datsun Sundown, my guest tonight announced his presence on the global Synthwave scene and his follow-up, Streets, released only six months later, made it clear he was one to watch. From that point on, he has been unstoppable, releasing two instant classic pop wave albums with Hearts on Fire and You and Me at the End of the World, signing to the LA-based record label Fixed Neon, and becoming the name in Canadian synthwave. A lot of acts in that genre could be from anywhere, but some are inextricably connected with the sound and character of the places they were born. The French have Carpenter Brute, Americans have The Midnight, and here in Canada, we are lucky enough to have Moonrunner 83, also known, of course, as Chad Williamson. Chad, welcome to Larger the Truth. I'm humbled, man. That was the coolest intro I think I've ever gotten. And uh, I've, <laughs> I've, told, I, I've told you before, man, you've got, you've got the finest radio voice I've ever heard in my entire life. As always, you are too kind. Now, I, uh, as I said, I, I found your stuff in, I want to say 2017. I was just getting into synth in the fall of 2017, and you dropped Dots and Sundown in December of 2017, right? I believe so. Yeah, it was right towards the end of the year, and then uh, we followed up with Streets in uh, kind of mid uh, mid two thousand eighteen. So I think it was Streets when I when I finally found your stuff, and then uh, I, we actually had we spoke briefly in twenty nineteen. But this is our really our first uh, our first long conversation, and we've been talking for an hour before we even hit record. So I think it's safe to say we get along. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I'm 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 always uh, stoked, and the conversation's always uh, really quite lively, lively, Brennan. When uh, when when we chat and we get into all sorts of crazy stuff, politics, drama, world yeah. events, international <laughs> intrigue, you name it, uh, music, uh, you know, culture, and uh, and Western Canada, of course, which we're both uh, very big fans of uh, uh, of this political or this particular corner of the globe, I should say. Yes, actually, that sort of leads me to something I, I've been meaning to tell you. Of course, as I say, Chad, Chad makes Synthwave, and, and you will have heard in my intro, if you're not familiar with Synthwave, what that is. But there is there's something you managed to accomplish in your music that I think is very cool, and I think it's it's unique to only a few artists in Canada. And that is that you, you managed to name-check Canadian locations in a way that doesn't sound clunky or forced. 
I can probably rattle off the name and I won't of uh, five or six tracks that I know that are specifically about Calgary that have been done in a really cheesy, cheesy way. And I still revisit those for a chuckle. Yeah. And uh, the the effort was uh, was was gallant on each and every single one of them. The <laughs> execution was less so. Uh, so, no, I, I, I appreciate the uh, appreciate the compliment. And uh, I'm just I, when we were chatting about this before, I just absolutely I'm, I'm such a big fan of uh, Western Canada and the people that live out here. Of course, I love the country at large, but uh, my heart is in, you know, the gem of the New West and it lies beside the Rockies. Absolutely. The reason this came to me, actually, this came to me recently because I was I was out for a drive with a friend of mine and uh, Gordon Lightfoot's The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald came up on Spotify. Do you, do you know that one? No. A great song, you know, very classic Canadian track. For our listeners who don't know, Gordon Lightfoot is a legendary Canadian singer-songwriter. The legend lives on from the Chippewa on down of the big lake they call Gitchagumi. The lake, it is said, never gives up her dead when the skies of November turn gloomy. As that song played, my friend and I were talking about this. We were talking about how most people who sing about Canada or who, who name check specific, very specific Canadian, either uh, locations or historical events quite often sound pretty clunky or forced, like those Calgary songs yeah. you were talking about. I was saying that, of course, Gordon Lightfoot pulls it off. And I, we were talking about other Canadian artists who can pull it off and you came up and my friend, <laughs> my friend really put it very well. And I, I think you'll appreciate this. She said, Gordon Lightfoot makes it sound mysterious. Moonrunner makes it sound sexy. So you oh, single-handedly- awesome have made Calgary sexy. That's, that's incredible. I was going to say romantic, um, uh, and, and, and almost nostalgic. The, the other artist that, uh, I've been, uh, that I'm a, tr- a tremendously big fan of is, uh, Stan Rogers, who anyone in Canada will be oh, of aware course. of him. He, uh, you know, kind of does the sea shanty, uh, East coast, Canada, you know, almost, almost like heritage folk kind of stuff. You know, he name drops like David Thompson and, uh, you know, the Northwest passage and all this stuff. That's, it's so distinctly Canadian. And I know that the, uh, you know, the tragically hip have, uh, have name dropped and, uh, you know, obviously Downey's, uh, I mean, he's just such a, a master with the English language and with poetry and with his, uh, with his delivery, he can paint Canada lyrically, which is, uh, it, it's tough to do without it sounding contrived. Right. And, yep. uh, that, the fact that I'm, even in that same tin, probably at the bottom of the tin, but even if I'm in the same tin, uh, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's pretty cool. I don't know. I don't know if it's, uh, I don't know if it's well-deserved, but, uh, yeah, it's cool to hear. For our listeners, I'm going to play you a little clip of the song Lost Souls. You can hear what we're talking about. This is from, this is from Chad's album, Hearts on Fire. Yeah. And so just that, that bit about take the C train home, you know, it, it just immediately, if you know, you know, and if you don't, it's just some kind of mythical thing, but it works. You never, you never stop to think, okay, so he's clearly talking about something. You either know what it is, or you can kind of incorporate it into your own sort of headcanon about what's happening to these people. And I, I just, I think that's a, a really, really cool thing. Anyone in Calgary will know exactly what the C train is and, 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 and almost anyone that has grown up here will undoubtedly have a number of stories about bizarre experiences on Calgary C train and, uh, uh, Cal- the, the Calgary C train is not always, um, regarded in the best light. Uh, I mean, you know, obviously right. just a light, right, light rail, uh, transit system. And, uh, the C train is not actually a particular leg of the train. It's, it's our whole, it's our whole system is called the C train. They just, right. just kind of what they call it. And, uh, um, I mean, when, when way back before Moonrunner was even a thing and, uh, right after I graduated high school back in the early, uh, uh, early two thousands, uh, my, one of my first real jobs was, uh, playing guitar, uh, for cash at the heritage, uh, C train station and also at Chinook uh, C train station. So there's, uh, uh, there, there are some, there are some memories there. Not all of them great, but, uh, yeah, man, I, I love the right. city and, uh, and, uh, and sharing, uh, sharing some Calgary centric ideas with, uh, with the world kind of through music and stuff is, uh, is kind of cool. And I, and I, and I agree. It's, it's, it's so funny because a, a lot of the stuff, if it's, uh, 
if it's done in a way that's ambiguous enough, it still sounds cool, even if you have no idea what the guy's talking about. That's it. It just works. Before we get too deep into your music, I, I guess we should talk about your background. Because, you know, before being, uh, before Synthwave, as you said, you, you played guitar, busking, basically. And you are also a pop punk guy, were you not? Yeah, I mean, uh, really crazy. I've, 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 I've worn a number of hats. So, I mean, uh, going back, uh, going back right to the beginning, uh, my parents put me in these horrible, horrible piano lessons where I was playing, uh, you know, huh. stuff like the baby elephant walk, which I hated. And I could never actually, man, I, I think I played that thing for like a year and then I finally played it at oh, a recital man. and it still sucked. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that actually kind of put me off music and like I dread coming home from school and be like, oh man, today I got a piano lesson. Like, oh, it's just brutal. And then um, right. I actually, uh, I got, um, th there's a, a sort of a traditional all boys uh, conservative uh, boarding school chain that was uh, prevalent. Uh, I mean, there's a couple schools across Canada uh, that was called the uh, St. John School, uh, School of Alberta. And it was a very difficult outdoors based modeled after traditional British boarding school. So it was real tough. I mean, uh, one thing that's kind of cool and just uh, talking about Stan Rogers and some Canadian history, there were dog exploratories. So there was 65 Huskies and Alaskan Malamutes at the school and they did dog sled exploratories, which today is something that you've got to, you know, pay 400 bucks for and go to Banff and you really? might get to pet a dog if you're lucky. Yeah, and uh, in, when I was in grade eight, uh, I paddled from Hinton to Fort McMurray, which is 1,100 kilometers. I did that over Jesus. a three and a half week period in a 28 foot uh, canoe that was called the Gabriel DeMont and it had the big warheads on it. So one of the big tenants of St. John's was to bring Canadian boys back to um, the roots of the voyageurs and the fur traders. And then in grade nine, uh, same sort of thing. So they'd actually let you out of school in June. You'd go out for three to four weeks in the bush. And uh, we did the big Churchill River system uh, in grade nine from LaRange all the way up to Pine House, northern Saskatchewan, and back to LaRange. And like, I was 14, 15. Wow. And during this, during this, uh, they actually had corporal punishment. So they'd paddle your ass when you were, uh, when you were bad. Oh, Jesus. Uh, uh, smoking was two spanks. And uh, I'll tell you, got, got, a, got a number of those. Not doing homework was one. If you were fighting, uh, both guys would get two spanks, winner and the loser of the fight. So pretty traditional. And of course, that's where uh, I started to develop a disdain and a distaste for authority and getting into punk rock uh, naturally, uh, you know, getting spanked by uh, a reverend uh, on occasion for not having homework done would, would do it. And it was what they did it with a two by one paddle. So, uh, oh, uh, Jesus. I, there, 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 was, there was a staff member there that actually had one that was painted red and had holes drilled in it. And he called it the red rocket. And uh, they dr he drilled holes in it to obviously break wind resistance. And I'll tell you, when, uh, when, uh, when you got a beat with one of those, whew, sounded like a shotgun. Uh, any, anyway, so. <laughs> Talk about people paying for, for dog sledding. I feel like that experience, the Red Rocket experience, that's something people also pay for now. So I'd like that's to true. think maybe he found a, a proper career doing this for people who actually want it. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely possible. I mean, to, to be fair, I think there was a lot of like consternation. I think a lot of the staff, like, you know, they'd, uh, they'd reluctantly have to, you know, uh, deliver corporal punishment when kids right, were bad right, and right. everything. But it was, it was really funny. Cause when I was there, I was probably one of the most like uh, rebellious kids. I was really into, um, uh, I was more into like things like bad religion and no effects at that time. So, I mean, I just didn't really know what punk was. And I was kind of listening to what some of the other punkers in the school were listening to. And, I had kind of, uh, you know, this, uh, this rebellious thing going on, but looking back at that whole St. John's school of experience, and I was kind of like, cause I mean, they went out of business and, and I think in 2006 or 2008 or something, you know, naturally their insurance carrier dropped them. And then that was the end of the whole show. Right. Is, right. uh, there's actually a really, uh, sad and, uh, 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 gross tragedy out at the St. John's all boys cathedral school out in Ontario, where I believe about 12 to 13 uh, young boys between, you know, 12 and 16 actually died in uh, a, a, a lake crossing on one of these canoe trips. Oh, wow. Um, and there was a book about, I think it's called Dark Waters, uh, a real short read, but just bizarre that this happened in our country. And of course, these, these types of, uh, you know, outdoor trips would just be unheard of. I mean, people go camping for the weekend or whatever, but to, you know, do a dog sled exploratory out in the bush for, you know, a week or two weeks in minus 40, where you actually don't have a cabin, where you're just sleeping in a, 
uh, kind of a, they call them super shelters, but it was basically just a tent uh, that had some <laughs> reflective stuff on it that would reflect the heat from the campfire back into the tent. It was really Jack London-esque, right? And, it sounds uh, it, my just friend. just didn't happen anymore. But, but looking back on that, I kind of go, you know, wait a second, I actually got a taste of some pretty historical Canadian experiences. Um, right. And now people are paying big, big money for that, right? So, and of course, uh, you know, being a, a young, stupid kid, I didn't appreciate any of that stuff at the time. <laughs> of and, course. You know, th- despite the fact that, you know, there's some religious elements and, you know, some of the traditional conservative stuff that obviously not everybody's a big fan of, the raw experience of, uh, you know, uh, having dogs, like do- uh, sled dogs at your disposal. We would tie, Brennan, we would tie two sled dogs up to a GT snow racer on the weekend. And when you're a 14 year old kid weighing 130 pounds or something, uh, <laughs> and you got two, two lead sled dogs ripping, ripping you around on a GT snow racer, you can't get any more Canadian than that, man. You really can't. I was going to say, we've reached almost comical levels of Canadiana here. I, I think... <laughs> This, this got derailed. This totally yeah. got derailed because you, you were asking me about kind of where uh, music stuff happened. So, but that was where, where I really, so my dad bought me a guitar. I mean, we were out of the school and, you know, I was having a rough time and, you know, I mean, it was real tough and everything. My old man bought me an electric guitar and the only thing I could really play was punk because it was real easy and I was playing, you know, uh, two note power chord stuff and people were teaching me Nirvana and, you know, Bush Glycerine. I think Glycerine was one of the first songs that I ever, ever learned. And okay. man, I played that riff over and over and over. And funny enough, I'm still playing that riff in synthwave. And some of the, some of the synthwave <laughs> songs are the same four chords, right? So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's kind of come full circle. But um, yeah, then I mean, I, I joined a number of bands. I was really into pop punk stuff. I really got into Angels and Airwaves actually in 2006. 2006, oh, 2007. Angels and Airwaves put out a record called, uh, I think, We Don't Need to Whisper. And I heard this track on it called, I think it's called The Adventure. And it's to this day, I think it's like still, it's just this magical kind of a, you know, they got these U2 spacey guitars and they're singing about, you know, how amazing life is and everything. That is now translated uh, directly into a lot of the Moonrunner stuff. And even one of my really good buddies is, uh, um, you know, I mean, he's, he's not a big music guy. He's not a big music lover, uh, but he, I've showed him some Moonrunner stuff and he goes, oh, this kind of sounds like Angels and Airways. And I'm going, I'm going, oh, no, uh, no, I swear, man, it doesn't, not at all. It's, I'm not inspired by them at all. And again, for, for our listeners who don't know, Angels and Airwaves, that was a uh, project of one of the members of Blink-182, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah, Tom DeLonge. And, and, and they're still going. I still don't know if any of those, any of those records were as good as the first one. So Angels and Airwaves is still, uh, still making music. And uh, um, that was a big part of it. So I, I did an acoustic uh, rock uh, project called Moments and Monuments, which if you're lucky, you can still find some tracks out there. Uh, and in 2009, okay. I played 150 shows across Western Canada in a year. Uh, we were playing every small Holy. crappy bar. Yeah, so we were playing about three or four shows a week and I was doing it full time. I was actually making some pretty decent cash. I had just graduated from journalism school. And of course, all my buddies went off to uh, get coffee for editors at big uh, newspapers and everything. And this was <laughs> right at the precipice of the decline of print media. This is literally where print media went to die. And all my friends were just starting their burgeoning careers in print media. And I I bailed and I started doing music stuff. And I actually... making a little bit more cash than my buddies that were running copy and, uh, you know, uh, doing (laughs) doing late night production stuff at... uh, at, uh, And enjoying the time more. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it was and it was so fun. Um, and then, and then, of course, uh, my 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 father actually passed away in 2011, and I had kind of this crazy, uh, uh, just kind of this crazy. Uh, I think they they call it, you know, the return of Saturn or whatever. And whether you're into astrology or not, and to be fair, I don't even know if I uh, believe in the astrology stuff, but. They say that, you know, uh, once in, 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 in your lifetime, and usually it happens around the time where uh, I think it's, you know, in your late, in your late 20s or early 30s, they say Saturn returns and, uh, and it Fs up your whole life, right? And right. everything kind of, so you have this like crazy kind of cataclysmic, uh, you know, event and that happened to be uh, it for me. And whether that was Saturn returns or just a bizarre turn of events, um, 
I saw myself thinking, oh my God, I don't really want to be playing rural Albertan bars when I'm 65 and fat and bald. Uh, I don't know if I can get people out to shows to see, uh, you know, big chunky old guy uh, playing, uh, you know, three chord punk songs. Uh, so went to law school, really started getting into top 40 music and uh, uh, very interested in production. And that was the big thing. And it, my interest in top 40 wasn't so much the songs themselves, uh, it was more the production and the songwriting and the sheer, uh, the sheer, you know, top shelf talent that went into or that was going into these songs that were, you know, that that had billions of or bil- millions and billions of people listening to them. Right. So there was a formula there that I was really interested in. I was interested in, uh, you know, ch- how music would chart on the radio and and I mean, I think I learned quite a bit and I think it's, uh, I was a little bit naive, but uh, having that experience and really trying to make talks, I, I really wanted to do top 40 stuff. So I was really trying to compete with a lot of these massive, massive songs that of course were done in, you know, big production houses that have millions of dollars worth of gear and of whole songwriting teams and everything. And of course, I don't know if I ever quite approached that level of production, but it sure got me to, uh, sure, it sure taught me, uh, you know, uh, it sure brought me a long way in my production experience and uh, uh, in the level of production that I was, uh, that I was kind of getting into j- just for my music. Right. So, and, and I think that has benefited Moonrunner in that, you know, I'm not making top 40 stuff and I'm obviously not really trying to compete with anybody anymore. I'm more, I'm just making music for me, but uh I'm really, really proud of the level of production uh, uh, in the music uh, in the music that I'm producing right now, and I think uh, I think people appreciate that. I certainly do because I, I have noticed. I mean, I listen to a lot of music, and, and certainly I don't have uh, you know the the ear of someone who does it for a living. But I know I know good from bad, and I know great from good. And the Moonrunner stuff—it's been really interesting watching you die or listening. I guess dial it in over the course of, of these records, you know, they've become tighter and tighter and tighter, you know, where, and, and not to the point where it's strained, but to the point where it's so sure of itself. And it is so very much exactly what you were trying to make it. And, and I think that's a, a really admirable thing. Cause again, not everyone can do it. You know, there's, there's a vast gulf between enthusiasm and ability and not everyone can cross it. And I think people tend to try and do everything themselves, even when they, can't? I guess this kind of brings me to one of the other unique aspects. I mean, I mean maybe it's not super unique, but um, in, in my experience, I mean, even when I was doing music stuff full time and touring and everything, we were literally doing everything ourselves. And one thing that I really noticed is, you know, we'd play a three forty-five minute three or three forty-five minute sets in some rural bar and. And we were doing it live off the floor. Everything was live. And sometimes that we, were pl- we were playing three shows, three or four shows a week. And sometimes they'd be great. Sometimes I'd be sick, but I right. had to pay my rent. So I'd still have to show up and I have to sing sick. And, you know, whether we were, whether we had played the best set in our entire life and, uh, you know, we just pulled it off flawlessly or whether it was kind of mediocre and, you know, kind of sucked. Everyone would be like, well, uh, you know, that was pretty good. Um, uh, you know, is, is the DJ going to be coming on uh, sometime soon, right? And I mean, I mean, I mean it, you know, when, when you put your heart and soul into a live set and have people go, yeah, man, that was actually, that was pretty good. Uh, uh, you know, uh, are, do you know any ACDC? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> um, I think we got that almost every single small town that we went to. And uh, we actually learned uh, uh, Shook Me All Night Long just, uh, really? just so that we, yeah, just so that we had one ACDC. So we'd be like, okay, buddy, I'll, I'll lay down some ACDC for you. I know um, they're an Australian band, but I feel like there is no more Canadian sentiment than, hey, do you know any ACDC? Right? They're, they've got it dialed in, man. They, like, I mean, they're ACDC. There's no other band like them and people freaking love them. But um, I, I think at the end of the day, I, I had learned from this whole, you know, touring experience that there were things that I was really, really quite good at. And then there were things that I was okay at. And right. when I started Moonrunner, the idea was was to 
work with as many musicians as possible, mostly friends and locals and, uh, and all that sort of stuff, uh, but still have uh, some, an element of control over the project. So really inject my vision, um, my production and, uh, you know, kind of my dream for the project uh, into it, but also uh, to elevate the project with the, uh, you know, with the, with the talents of people who are frankly better songwriters, better singers um, (laughs) and, uh, and all that sort of stuff. And the result is, I like to kind of think about it as almost a, a mixtape of, uh, you know, it's got the same nostalgic, uh, you know, sort of happy, but sort of sad vibe with a multitude of different musicians bringing their take on that feeling to the music. And I think that's what has, uh, you know, has, has has really resonates with uh, with people uh, when they listen to uh, Moon Runner. And and I mean, I just like to say, I think there's, you know, there's like 30 people that I work with that have uh, contributed oh, wow. in varying degrees to the to the project. A uh, lot of lot of locals, great session musicians, obviously great feature artists and uh, uh, singers, songwriters, all that sort of stuff. And it's so dynamic. I mean, we've got two different sax players. I write with a, a really talented singer-songwriter, pianist, uh, Jared uh, Nicklin, who has written a whole schwack of Moonrunner songs with me. It's such a dynamic project. Uh, I think if it was just me uh, playing three-chord guitar stuff, I think people get bored of it pretty quick. I agree. I mean, something with, uh, which is certainly not a judgment on your guitar playing, but uh, I think that the more you can tie other people into the art you make, I think the better it is for everyone. And I, I think the more life it brings to it. You know, I, I was uh, I, actually one of my previous interviews was with a, a fellow from back east, a young guy named Denzel Gordon. And he that's very much what he's trying to do with his project. The Unlinchables is he's trying to bring as many people as he knows together because there's something about that that mix of energy that makes a thing stronger than if it's just you alone. And something I think it really has come out of listening to Moonrunner and knowing that your many of your collaborators are local is it really highlights the diversity of music in Alberta because I think most people kind of get the sense that Alberta is country music, you know, country western, that's yeah. it. You know, yeah. whereas <laughs> there's a pretty great stoner doom band from Edmonton I know called uh, Hibernation. I, I actually just today I listened to a, um, a demo from another power metal band called Tower Hill that's out of somewhere in Alberta, you know, there's such a a wide variety there and you only ever hear about a portion of it. So again, that's something I've really appreciated about Moonrunner is is learning that, no, no, there's so much more there. Alberta is, uh, it it certainly gets painted in Canada as, uh, you know, the bedrock of conservatism and, uh, you know, country and Western and rodeo and everything else. And that's not to say country music and the country artists that come out of this province aren't uh, top shelf because they really are. And uh, a lot of, a lot of, uh, Oh, certainly. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, this whole thing is I'm, I'm, I'm just not super familiar with the country and Western scene, but I know that a lot of, uh, you know, fairly prevalent country and Western artists have actually gotten their start here or, uh, you know, uh, what one artist I actually, we opened for in 2009, uh, Lindsay L. I mean, she's won all these, uh, you know, women's countries, music awards. Like, I mean, she's absolutely massive and she's from, uh, she's from, uh, she's from Calgary. And, uh, I mean, she's incredible. I think, uh, oh, there's another guy. I, I'm totally embarrassing myself because I don't know any <laughs> of the country musicians that have come out of here, but I know that there's been a whole schwack of them. And I know that some of them, uh, do it because, you know, the scene is, uh, uh, um, uh, I mean, uh, country music's obviously very popular. So if you're a very good country artist and you make great country music, I'm sure there's a lot of fans out there that are, uh, yearning for, uh, that kind of particular style. Um, but I've worked with, uh, just for, a, a, as a, as a really good example, uh, the song flashbacks on, uh, on, on hearts on fire. Uh, was written by uh, the bed track was written by Jared uh, Nicklin and I in a writing session. Jared is in a uh, power pop band called uh, Boy and Girl, and they, I mean they've been in Calgary for you know I don't know fifteen years or something. They've been here forever. Oh, okay. The uh, the girl in Boy and Girl is uh, uh, a, a gal by the name of uh, uh, Crystal McGrath. 
And she has a, you know, budding country career. And I mean, every time there's a, you know, stampede here, and of course, stampede for people who don't know is a big uh, outdoor uh, Western festival and rodeo that we have here in Calgary, Alberta in uh, at the start of July. Crystal's playing uh, every stampede and she's a, she's a talented, talented country singer and you listen to flashbacks and uh, she sure doesn't sound country. So there's a lot of talent here outside of the country and Western shtick. Since we're, we're back at Moonrunner, obviously we've said this already, Datsun Sundown comes out 2017. What was the Canadian synthwave scene like when that record came out? Because that was sort of, that was kind of a high point for synth generally. I think that, you know, sort of around the world. Cause I think everyone was still waiting for gunships second record. I don't think Carpenter Brutes Beware the Beast had come out yet. Cause I feel like Beware the Beast sort of really marked a, a turning point, uh, because it, it, it was very divisive. But, but anyways, what was the scene like at the time? When we started, I mean, you know, I saw, I saw drive and, uh, like so many other music, I, I, you know, it's super cliche to be like, Oh, I watched <laughs> drive. And then I wanted to start a synthwave band, but, uh, I saw Drive and I, I forget, somebody recommended it to me and there, there's a track on there and, and my God, I can't, I can't, uh, uh, I think it's, I think it's called Human Being or Real Human Being or something. Oh yeah, and it's, that, um, I mean, that's, uh, that's a real, uh, a real hero. There, there you go. There you go. I mean, I heard it and I was like, man, this is, this is simple. This is, this is basically synth, uh, like pop synth stuff. And, uh, this is something that, uh, that I can do. Obviously I've been doing top 40 stuff. I was really into, uh, you know, progressive house and, uh, kind of melodic, uh, housey type stuff. And when I heard, uh, real hero, I, I, I was just, I was just floored. And then I found Time Cop, and Time Cop, uh, um, Time Cop 1983 was was pretty much what what spawned uh, Dats and Dats and Sundown. And even now, I mean, I, I don't even consider myself an, uh, you know, a synthwave aficionado or a guy who's really deeply connected or knowledgeable about the scene in and of itself. I heard, I heard Time Cop and I thought, uh, I want to make, uh, you know, my, my version of that. That's, that's, that's really kind of how it started. And I, I, uh, I wasn't aware of any bands in Calgary. Looking back, I now know that, uh, you know, uh, as you said, that was a, a kind of a, one of the high watermarks uh, in the synthwave scene. But as far as I was concerned, I was like, man, I think I'm the, I'm the only guy doing this other than Time Cop 1983. <laughs> right. I'm like, I, I, I'm riding the crest, man. This wave is only going up. <laughs> Clearly, I was... Uh, uh, I was mistaken, and uh, you know, as 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 I continue to do uh, uh, synthwave and stuff, I had a really good uh, friend of mine, um, uh, Troy uh, Troy Kirkland, who is in Die Scum Inc. He was doing this stuff uh, long before I was, and it was uh, until I started doing it, I didn't know that uh, he was doing it first uh, for a very oh, long time. Oh, okay, right. And his particular brand of synthwave is. Uh, and I don't want to say lo-fi, but it was, it's kind of this dark, uh, peculiar, uh, cinematic, very cinematic kind of lo-fi, uh, lo-fi synth wave. And it's, uh, it, I mean, it's very, very authentic. And the way that those guys produce, they've just got a whole schwack of synths in a room and they just walk around and play stuff and they just record it and then assemble songs later together out of their jam sessions, which oh, is, uh, interesting. Which is very, very different from how, I mean, when, when I'm recording songs, uh, I mean, I'm looking at a ranger window and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm playing with sounds and I'm, I'm literally building it kind of like Lego from the ground up. Um, right. And that's one of the things that I think is, is really missing from, uh, from, from music and from uh, the creative aspect of music in general these days is, you know, in this age of, uh, you know, electronic music where a guy can literally sit there and you don't need any other musicians, you can just Lego block your way to an album. There's something missing with being in a room with musicians 
jamming and uh, feeding off one another, hearing your buddy play a riff and, you know, you look over and it's kind of that pick a destiny thing with Jack Black, right? You know, you're like, no, I don't want you on that side of the universe. You know, I want you to the warmer, uh, hotter thing, you know, when they're in the Pentagon or whatever, they're trying to come up with a masterpiece. As funny as that is, uh, I mean, that really speaks to something that uh, is is magical uh, about being in a room with other musicians, vibing and feeding off one another's uh, energy to create something together. And what I love about Troy and Die Scum Inc. is that those guys are still doing that. Um, right. And to, to a degree, I try to do that as much as possible. We've got a, a lakeside uh, a place up at Sylvan Lake. It's a little log cedar kit cabin that was built in 1950. I go up there for a week every uh, August for the first week of August and I try to uh, bring out as many musicians from around the province as I can to uh, write and to record uh, just to try to capture some of that um, spontaneous magic from having musicians together in a room making music. And there's, there's, there's soul there and I think that that has been lost to a degree in Lego, Lego music and sending stems to a buddy in, you know, I don't know, Buenos Aires that you've never met who records sax and sends it back to you and you, you know, you pay him on Fiverr and uh, you mix the sax and, you know, it's all kind of uh, uh, paint by numbers rather than an organic, uh, authentic uh, experience, right? I I think one of the examples I like to use is the difference between uh, the, the, are you familiar with the Pogues? Heard of them? Haven't heard them. Okay. So (laughs) heard the, heard the name. If you, if you ever get a chance, listen to the, the albums, uh, Rum, Sodomy, and the Lash, and then If I Should Fall from Grace with God. And Rum, Sodomy, and the Lash was produced by Elvis Costello. And it's all Crazy. very heavily curated. It's very, very heavily produced, very heavily um, processed. So it sounds very airless. And from what I understand, during the editing process, Costello would, would pull... It wasn't even just choosing which track he wanted to use for the guitar. It would be which parts of which track he wanted to use for the guitar. So he might use, you know, this riff from track one, this from track two, this from track three. And apparently he would even do that with vocals sometimes. And whereas um, If I Should Fall From Grace With God, which came, I believe, a couple of years later, that was all done in studio sessions. So that's all live record stuff. And the energy is so much different. And, you know, again, Rum, Sodomy, and the Lash is, is one of their classic albums. It has some wonderful songs on there. I, I think it's great. But there is a definite difference between the two. It depends on what you're looking for in the sound. I like that organic sound. I like that kind of holistic, everyone-in-one-place sound. But I know there are people who, who prefer the other thing. Uh, but it, it's, it's fascinating to hear the difference between the two. I mean, obviously, that's what's so cool about music, right? I mean, uh, there's there's something out there for everybody. But one thing that I've, uh, you know, and I mean, Moonrunner's been around for, you know, four records. Uh, we're almost done the fifth record. I actually have to deliver everything in the next. Uh, I've got to, I'm under pressure. I, uh, I've been kind of slack and, and I've got to have everything delivered <laughs> by October, October 1st. Uh, so that means I, in the next two weeks, oh, wow. I've got to have everything uh, at least mixed. Um, but, but one, one thing that I've, that I've done to kind of refresh my perspective, especially in terms of, uh, you know, being inspired to write is revisiting bands like the doors. And, uh, I know it's super cheesy, but I mean, the Beatles and Pink Floyd, a lot of musicians from the seventies and eighties where, you know, they, they go into a studio for two weeks and track a record in one, in one, uh, you know, I mean, in one, uh, steady rip. And, uh, there's, I mean, I've never even been a Beatles guy. Uh, actually, frankly, I'm not a super huge fan of the Beatles. And one of my really good friends who is a uh, custom uh, guitar luthier here in Calgary. He's uh, it's so funny. He's the, the, the people in the city, Brendan, this guy, <laughs> this guy works at Safeway in the produce department and he calls himself uh, the world's most talented banana stacker. Um, <laughs> you'd never know it by looking at this guy. He's, uh, you know, about a million people have probably looked at him and just walked by thinking he's just another dude in the produce uh, section at Safeway. Um, this guy builds some of the most beautiful custom guitars in the city. Wow. Uh, and I'm, I'm lucky enough to, you know, know him, uh, really well. And, uh, we kind of connected after my father passed away and 
I mean, he's an older dude and, uh, you know, this guy has had such an interesting life. But he, he just recently, he suggested, uh, you know, I guess there's this documentary, I think it's called three, uh, McCarthy 321 or something. And what it is, is Rick Rubin has sat down with Paul McCartney uh, in this kind of a cool uh, mixing environment where they've got a whole bunch of the Beatles tracks up on a uh, Neve uh, mix console so that you can kind of listen to the stems. And McCarthy is basically, Rick Rubin is basically interviewing uh, McCarthy about, you know, particular aspects of the recording process little cool nuanced stories about uh, in, uh, particular Beatles songs. And, uh, you know, Steve, my, my buddy who builds these guitars, he said, uh, uh, you know, Chad, as a, as, a, as a recording engineer and as a mixer and a producer and everything, you got to watch this stuff. And I'm kind of like, oh, are the Beatles any good? And he's like, dude, <laughs> the, dude, they're the Beatles, man. And he's like, you're really going to like it. So I actually kind of, I kind of watched it. And, you know, whenever anyone recommends you, some people are like, oh, it's this, you know, this podcast or this thing on Netflix, you got to watch them. Like, oh, you know, I always kind of take it with a grain of salt because they don't have a lot of time. But I slammed through this uh, McCarthy documentary and, uh, you know, getting, getting this, this perspective of an era that has really disappeared where, you know, studio time was precious and people had to practice and they had to be dialed and they had to have songs ready to go. And there was experimentation in the studio and there was always new technology coming out, whether it was synthesizers or new ways to use magnetic tape for the recording process or uh, you know, cool new recording trips, uh, tricks where you got, you know, plate reverbs where there's these big plates in these big rooms and you'd send a signal through one side and it'd travel through the plate and you'd pick it up on the other and you got this artificial reverb or recording in a stairwell. And the, there was, there was something to the process that has been, um, not necessarily lost, but is, 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 is less part of the process now that we've got plugins and computers and algorithmic reverbs and all this technology to really help us uh, write and produce music. And going back and having, and of course, this was my first, uh, my first real foray into the Beatles. And I started listening to the catalog and I went, oh my God, like this stuff is, uh, I'm still not a huge Beatles fan, but from, from the perspective of, a, of, a, of an engineer and a producer, Beatles process was just so fascinating to me. And there's a reason why they are, you know, one of the, uh, one of the cornerstones of, uh, of pop music. And, uh, you know, I mean, they're, uh, one of the most inspirational bands ever, you know? Absolutely. I, I think no matter what you think of the Beatles, you can't deny that they are still the Beatles. They're a thing, man. That's it. That's actually kind of something I'm curious about because obviously, you know, as we've said, you produce all your stuff and I've sort of noticed you moving uh, maybe a little further away from uh, maybe the genre that we would call purely synthwave, uh, sort of in, in, in expanding your sound in, in a, I don't want to say more pop direction, but maybe something along those lines. Like I, I refer to the albums as pop wave and I don't even know if I've got the, the right terminology, but it, it sounds like your, like your sound has evolved is what I'm saying. You know, the way, the same yeah. way the Beatles, you know, the Beatles sound evolved, your sound has evolved and what sort of what direction do you see that evolving? Are you trying to sort of uh, appeal beyond the genre? What are your thoughts there? And I know exactly what you're talking about. And, and I, think it's a, I think it's a fair comment. If you listen to Datsun as opposed to You and Me at the Edge of the World, I mean, I think that Moonrunner is just coming into itself a little bit more. And rather than try to replicate, you know, the sound of Time Cop 1983 in 2017, which I, I love. I mean, you know, oh, Jordy yeah. is, I mean, he's one of my, he, he is one of the, one of my biggest inspirations in Synthwave. But rather than trying to continue to just replicate the same sound, and that's not that I'm not nostalgic and fond and still inspired by that vibe. I really think that Moonrunner has just developed its, uh, and, and I mean, that's not to say that Datsun was kind of a soulless copycat of all the stuff that oh, was no, happening no, no, at of that time. 
Um, I think I still bring a lot of personal flavor and flair. Uh, and, and I mean, it is pop wave. It's, uh, you know, it's definitely not uh, what I would consider to be raw synth wave in, the, you know, the same way that uh, um, a lot of the more instrumental uh, kind of darker stuff I would consider to be pure synth wave. It really is pop wave. Um, and a big part of what I've always done is I love vocals in music. Um, I may do instrumentals in the future, but, uh, you know, Moonrunner is vocal driven music and I'm inspired by pop music. That's uh, just kind of the way it is. And as I've progressed in my kind of musical journey with this particular project, especially with these, you know, the, uh, such this breadth of, uh, you know, injections of talent from so many different people, Moonrunner has really developed a unique flavor that I don't think is easily, I don't think, I, I mean, I don't think it's it's necessarily the same as a lot of the other stuff out there. I mean, if you listen to a lot of the, you know, the really prevalent pop wave stuff, obviously the Midnight, um, you know, Ollie Ride, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, Josh Daly stuff, Nina, um, these are some of the, um, Michael Oakley, these are some of the most talented people, uh, in the scene and there's countless more. I'm, I don't want to, uh, you know, kind of, uh, short change, uh, the, the talent in the broader synthwave sure. circle by just mentioning these folks. There's so many, uh, that I've obviously not, uh, talked about, but, um, I really do think that Moonrunner stands on its own from, uh, all these other musicians and not in a way that, you know, where it's, uh, it's superior or inferior by any stretch, just that it's its own thing. And one of the, one of the other aspects is that I, I don't want to just cater to, uh, uh, to synthwave fans or the synthwave scene. I really, really want people to listen to Moonrunner and just feel nostalgic for a place they've never been to and a time that never was irrespective of the genre. And one thing that people have told me over and over again, Brennan, is that anyone can listen to Moonrunner and become a fan, whether you're into metal or hip hop or folk music or uh, rock and roll or, you know, oldies. It's approachable music and oh, absolutely. It's, develop, it's developed a character of its own and I'm just trying to foster that identity and that character. You know, like I said, there's so many other musicians. I've, I feel like I'm just uh, the steward of something that is much bigger and much more important than just myself making, you know, cheesy three chord songs that I've done for my <laughs> whole life. This is, this, is, uh, this is bigger than me and it's more important than you know, uh, the Chad project, this is, this is Moonrunner and there's, there's 30 or 40 other people that are involved and that have contributed to make this the project that it is. I couldn't agree more. I'm a fan and, uh, knowing that there's a new album coming out, I'm very excited. So, uh, Chad, I, I appreciate everything, man. I appreciate you taking the time. I, I, again, I could keep you on the phone for, we've been on here two hours. I could keep you on, I think another two. So, um, I'm going to let you go, but, uh, before we do, where can everyone find you online? Um, so I mean, the best place is to probably, uh, I mean, I'm at Moonrunner uh, on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm not a huge Twitter fan, but you'll find me there. Nevertheless, uh, you know, uh, saying whatever, uh, <laughs> often, often spouting off when I probably shouldn't, or, uh, you know, <laughs> posting pictures of my cats or something like that. Uh, moonrunner.com will just forward to uh, Bandcamp, but I'm also on, uh, Fix Neon, the record label that has been so, uh, generous and courteous and, uh, and wonderful to me. And that's one thing, of course, that everyone, uh, you know, I mean, everyone always thinks that these record labels are big and they're evil and they're faceless and everything. And Fixed is the exact opposite of that. They're so compassionate with their musicians, their understanding. There's something new and they really do foster uh, their artists and, uh, uh, and they're out there for the music. And that's been so amazing for this project. And I think it's been a good fit, but you can scope us out on uh, Fixed, uh, Fixed Neon dot com i think it's fixneon.com and uh you can find me there find me on youtube i'm all over the place just look up moonrunner 83 there's only there's only one i'm so honored uh, uh brandon to, to talk to you man you're uh, you're a good friend and uh, uh an, an intelligent uh, intelligent guy the conversation's great you got this 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 radio voice it's uh <laughs> you know i mean i think the only other guy is like kelsey Grammer. he's got a pretty great voice he's as pretty well great, but yeah. uh you're up there man you're hey, up there i'll take it i'll take it all right. Well, again, my guest is Chad Williamson, also known as Moonrunner83. 
His uh, newest album, You and Me at the Edge of the World, is available everywhere. You can stream your music, but definitely buy a copy on Bandcamp if you can. Support independent artists, folks. It, it makes a difference. Vote with your dollars. Chad, thank you so much. I love it, man. Thanks so much, Brennan. It's just such an honor to honor to hang out with you, man, and uh, come out to Calgary. Um, I'm telling you, I tell everyone to come out to Calgary. So, uh, you know, free hugs, man. Free hugs. Deal. And that's going to do it. Thanks again to Chad from Moonrunner83 for taking the time to chat. If you like the music you heard in this show, folks, there is a lot more out there for you. Make sure to check it out. And I am very much looking forward to the new record, whenever that's dropping, and when it does. Keep an eye on my social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at LargelyTheTruth, and I'll make sure to post up a link. Of course, make sure to follow Moonrunner on the various platforms, especially his Instagram. He's got a great Instagram account, and that will keep you updated on all things Moonrunner83. You know, there are, there are folks out there who say that Synthwave is dead, who say that the, uh, the wave has crested. We've seen the high water mark. Chad and I talk a little bit about that in the show, but I'm hopeful that uh, though the first iteration of the genre may have reached its peak, I think there's so much more left to explore, and I truly believe that Moonrunner83 is going to be one of the people to explore it. As I mentioned on the show, Chad and I talked quite a bit, and uh, that, as I mentioned in the show, Chad and I talked quite a bit outside of the actual interview, and some of that conversation is available to my patrons at patreon.com slash largely the truth. Two bucks a month gets you early access to ad-free episodes and bonus conversations when available. And uh, this episode, there are definitely bonus conversations available. Again, that's patreon.com slash largely the truth and $2 a month gets in the door. Thanks again for listening, folks. This show is still finding its feet. It is still very new, but I find it deeply gratifying and knowing there are people out there enjoying it too makes it that much better. If you want to shoot me an email, I'm at largelythetruth at gmail.com. As I mentioned, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at largelythetruth. And if you could leave a five-star review wherever you can, I would certainly appreciate it. New shows benefit uh, even more than usual from positive reviews and uh, ratings, and that would be a huge help in getting the show in front of some new eyes. So, thanks again to my guest Chad Williamson, Moonrunner83, for taking the time. Thanks to Peter of Pizzanta Music for my fabulous theme song. You can find more from him by searching for Pizzanta Music wherever you get your tunes or by going to nightharvestrecordings.com. And finally, thank you for listening. Without you, there wouldn't be much point. Until next time, I hope the night takes you to the same strange and wonderful places it takes me. And remember, if you're not sure what comes next, put a call out to the dark. You never know who's going to pick up. I'll see you next time.